welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. So, this week I'm still on the topic of who do you say he is? I was talking to a friend the other day who was raised Catholic, you know, big family, church, the whole nine yards, and even more than me, who was trained in school but not at home to be Catholic, and uh, she isn't really following the official tenets of the faith any longer. She has, she said, and I believe her, incorporated her religious training into other philosophies and ideas. That's, I suppose, what a lot of people call spiritual, and I'm not, I'm not making light of it. I'm just mentioning it. How we met is one of those interesting and rather labyrinthine stories, and until that other day, our interactions, though we both live in California, took place on group occasions back on the East Coast. So this was the first time we had met for something in which we were the only attendees, and in the morning after the event, we had a brief time to talk. Daily life interactions always seem to inform this program, and our conversation did. She thought... And I agreed that it was important for children to be introduced to a religion when they are young, even if as happens in every faith, Catholicism being no exception when you look at all the poles, they wander away in early adulthood. She noted that some folks will try to introduce their kids to synagogue or church when they're older, in their teen years, for example, and now they go into this mystically expressed space with ritual and a history they have never known and find it all just too much to absorb. And the first reaction is, get me out of here, this is crazy. If the introduction is early, imperfect as trying to explain the esoterica of a faith, and I speak from the Catholic tradition, obviously, in particular, when you hear words like transubstantiation and consubstantial and hypostatic union and dogma and doctrine, then at least there is a foundation, a familiarity, if not a particular express understanding. You have gotten an introduction to the other world considerations and while you might not stay or leave and come back, as we often hope, you have this context about man's search for meaning early on. So how does this apply to today's podcast or any episodes before? Well, I feel a little guilty, not horribly so, but definitely. In my ordinary old Catholic way, I wonder if anyone who would run across my discussion of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity might cause someone who has never ever had much to do with Catholicism or any faith to become utterly confounded. I won't say it's easy for me to talk about these things because the fact is that we cradle Catholics heard all the time when we were learning and it was true. It's a mystery. Reason can only take us so far. Then faith is what has to take over if it's going to take over. And I'm not turned off by the mystery because I heard about it from the time I was about five years old. Now, I left the practice of faith in part because my education was sporadic and interrupted by the insanity of the 1960s, which is probably, in my opinion, outdone by the insanity of today, another subject. And my education was arguably incomplete 
in terms of my faith. But after college, where I had read about the face of the world, the hero of A Thousand Faces and the delights of the New Age, I used to love a bookstore in Los Angeles, I bet a lot of you remember it, called The Bodai Tree. And after law school, when I found myself looking to look at my life in relation to the universe and my purpose in life, I had something to bring me back, that thread I had carried all those years, my Catholicism. So if you are a Catholic who didn't have early training or incomplete training, or a non-Catholic who is sort of attracted to Catholicism but thinks, oof, listening to this character on some digital platform, I can't make head or tail of this. It's hocus pocus, superstition, I understand parenthetically or not, there are some theories that the actual phrase, short-term expression for magic and superstition, hocus-pocus, is a valorization of the phrase of transubstantiation, hoc est enum corpus meum. I have a suggestion about any attempt to really learn about Catholicism, and that is, first, to go back to its very beginnings, and that is the century after Christ's resurrection, before the New Testament was written by the followers of Christ, Catholics. They were Catholics. If you read any of the Church Fathers, you can Google Church Fathers on the internet, you will see that the period was the disciples going around the known world preaching Christ crucified. The tradition was handed down written down in letters by people like Ignatius of Antioch, who was born around 35 AD, so very close in time, a contemporary virtually of Christ, and died by martyrdom around 107 AD. Now, these folks were talking about the very current dogmas of the Church, the Eucharist, even the idea of Mary, Jesus' mother, having a very special human role in the work of redemption by her son. It's a bit of slogging, but the development of the faith, the tradition, the councils, the magisterium, and the New Testament, which God inspired, are of a piece. The New Testament was written out of a context. It didn't appear whole and without a lot of birthing. I can't think of anything from human life itself to the tenets of any faith that don't develop from a seed and require an attention to its detail and its rationale. Many a convert has attributed that conversion to being exposed to the Church Fathers, but I only read a small part of the Church Fathers after I returned to the Catholicism I had been introduced to as a child. I didn't even know who the Church Fathers were until I came back into the faith to explore it in my late 20s. And Cardinal Newman, who was a convert, from the Anglican Church into Catholicism actually discouraged others of his friends from becoming Catholic too soon, before they were really ready, before they could truly assent both in faith and reason to its essence. Jesus built his church on Peter and on his descendants. Building takes time. And speaking of development, one of the objections to the idea of Christ as God, as well as human being, two natures, one person of the Trinity, is that he arguably didn't say outright that he was God, and that 
to the extent the expression is more clear in its ambiguity, it was only in the Gospel of John that there are so many intimations of his divinity. And also, folks get worked up, you see, because he talks to the Father so clearly that they think he has no identity with the Father as eternal God. My goal for Catholics and interested non-Catholics who do listen to this program, or will listen, is that after hearing me or anyone on the many podcasts and radio shows and television shows about Catholicism, that they don't just take my word for it, that they go and look for themselves at the source documents. So that's why I mentioned some of these things. So you can look and then I too can go back and learn and relearn. There is so much I don't know. And when I do read some things and I think I've got it to the best of my imperfect, fragile human nature, I realize I still don't and I have to go back again. There's so much I don't understand and will not understand until, as many have said before me, until I'm standing in private judgment with our Lord. So let's look at some of the biblical statements Jesus made related to himself and his Father. The first one I want to do in a bit of context because it's when Jesus really starts his public ministry by going to be baptized by John the Baptist, his cousin. So John is what, about five, six months older than Jesus, and he's preparing the way for Jesus. In fact, he says in his preaching, he's crying in the wilderness. He says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he knows someone very special, very different, unique, is coming to lead further to salvation. He knows that this person is coming. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And when Jesus comes, he says, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to see me? But Jesus said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And as you know, the heavens opened, and then there was the Holy Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So notice all three persons of the Trinity are present at the baptism of Jesus. This is all from Matthew, starting at chapter 3 and going through to chapter 4. Another from Matthew at uh, chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. By the way, I'm looking at the Douay Rems Bible which I think is both beautiful and it's a Catholic Bible and Catholic translations. Uh, there are different translations in different faiths uh, or parts of the faith. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a whole other translation which doesn't necessarily even have any comparison to the ones of Catholics and Protestants. But at verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding 
and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's pretty close identification, I think, for Jesus to his Father, an identity of nature, although his role as the Word is different. So yes, I'm moving into John, which has most of the references that are more powerfully associated with Jesus being divine. Here's another section of John the Baptist having a discussion about the Lord who is to come. He says at chapter 3, verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth, and of the earth he speaks. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He who receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for it is not by measure that he gives the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. Here's a powerful one at chapter 14, verse 8, when the Lord is talking to Philip. And Philip says to our Lord, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Well, that kind of ties up nicely in a way, because you have God the Father, with whom the Word has always dwelt. That Word is sent by the Father to do His work. And here's at verse 12 something else that Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It seems that there's such a strong identity being expressed here, an identity of essence, but a sort of division of works, of, of purpose. That then makes sense, that the persons are the relationship, the work, and the essence is the triune God. So before these writings, these inspired by God writings, there's a whole development in history of at least a hundred years. And then after these are written and decided upon, because remember, some were tossed out. There were those that were called the apocryphal gospels and apocryphal writings, and they are not part of the canon that so many people call sola scriptura. So there's a development before, during, and after. And after you have the councils, the Christian councils, the Catholic councils, some of which, many of which, up to the point where Luther separated from the Catholic Church, are considered still valid by Protestant faiths, many of them. I mentioned a while ago that 
I had been reading the Catechism of the Council of Trent, which is in the 4th fourth, fourth century, so only 400 years after Christ. I'm not expressing any sense of dissatisfaction with the Catechism of the Church that we have now, post-Vatican II. It contains the same basic tenets, but to me personally, the Catechism of the Council of Trent is like the Nicene Creed itself or Jesus's prayer, the Our Father. It, it's so elegant in its simplicity, although obviously the concept of God and our relationship with him is difficult to wrap one's head around. So here are some of the things that the Council of Trent says. It refers to the Bible, the Gospel of John, the New Testament, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So at page 37 of the Council of Trent Catechism, there is this. When we are told that Jesus is the Son of God, we are not to understand anything earthly or mortal in his birth, but are firmly to believe and piously to adore that birth by which from all eternity the Father begot the Son, a mystery which reason cannot fully conceive or comprehend, and at the contemplation of which, overwhelmed as it were with admiration, we should exclaim with the prophet who shall declare his generation. On this point, then, we are able to believe that the Son is of the same nature, of the same power and wisdom with the Father, as we more fully profess in those words of the Nicene Creed, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial to the Father, by whom all things were made. Our universe contains mysteries we haven't even begun to broach, and we can see that universe through our telescopes, and we're aware of them. We have a closer connection to them physically than we do, in a sense, to the God who is beyond all of it. So poo-pooing that something is a mystery doesn't mean it's less of a mystery because we refuse to accept it. Humanity had a problem. The fall was an act of outright and contemptible disobedience to the Creator. It was Adam and Eve, it was the then human race doing what it always seems to do, using free will to say, I'll be God on my terms. No matter how good the human being, there was the separation from God after that fall, the inclination towards sin. And so, says the Council of Trent, the human race, having fallen from its elevated dignity, no power of men or angels could raise it from its fallen condition and replace it in its primitive state. To remedy the evil and repair the loss, it became necessary that the Son of God, whose power is infinite, clothed in the weakness of our flesh, should remove the infinite weight of sin and reconcile us to God in his blood. That's at page 32 to 33. So, again, God the Father utters the word who is with him and has always been with him and he becomes clothed in the weakness of our flesh. He remains truly God, but now he is also fully human. Back to development, the development of faith. The fact is that the work of salvation itself has been an evolution, a development, a preparation in the days of Abraham. We go back further, Noah, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham. And these good men and women shared that the Lord would provide, would overcome the evil through which men lived and died. But it would take time. Time is what we have. 
God is outside of time. And all along, men and women were and have been invited to stand with God in the work of his leading them to salvation. This is where, if you really think about it, the awesomeness of God really stands out. There is God the Father, and again, he speaks, and his very word becomes one of us, one of the creatures that he made. One of those creatures, Mary, has to use her free will to cooperate with the mystery of the word. This is not an earthly or mortal birth. She is the vessel for his becoming something he was not before. He was always God. Now he is also man. From the Council of Trent, we believe and confess that the same Jesus Christ, our only Lord, the Son of God, when he assumed human flesh for us in the womb of the Virgin, was not conceived like other men from the seed of man, but in a manner transcending the order of nature, that is, by the power of the Holy Ghost, so that the same person remaining God as he was from eternity became man what he was not before. That's at page 41. So again, I, I repeat it because it is, it's, it's hard to fathom, but it's the reality. The Word who was with God and was God from all eternity assumed human nature, but all the persons of the Trinity were, as the Council of Trent says, the authors of the mystery. One of the things I found helpful in thinking about the Trinity, it's very hard to think about it and speak of it without falling into some version of a heresy. So that's why I always say, I talk about this stuff here, one, because I enjoy doing it, but also because I'm trying to struggle with the very same concepts that any other Catholic is trying to struggle with, and that the issues that all of us are trying to struggle with. And so I try to wrap my head around it. I think I get it for a while, and then it's all gone again, and I've got to start all over. And so one of the things I find helpful for a time is that in thinking about the Trinity, which you can't avoid when you talk of Jesus Christ, if you understand Jesus to be fully God and fully man, it's also that the Trinity is relational. This, from the Council of Trent, helped me. The three persons, since it would be impiety to assert that they are unlike or unequal in anything, are understood to be distinct only in their respective properties. For the Father is unbegotten, the Son begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both. Thus we acknowledge that the essence and the substance of the three persons to be the same in such wise that we believe in confessing the true and eternal God, we are piously and religiously to adore distinctions in the persons, unity in the essence, and equality in the Trinity. Here's another helpful piece from the Catechism of the Council of Trent at page 27. The Father, in particular, we call Almighty, because he is the source of all being, as we also attribute wisdom to the Son, because he is the eternal word of the Father, and goodness to the Holy Ghost, because he is the love of both. I like this little piece here at 44, and it's headed, it's a little heading, it says, How to Profit by the Mystery of the Incarnation. And they say, these truths comprise the substance of what appears to demand explanation regarding the admirable mystery of the conception, 
To reap from them abundant fruit for salvation, the faithful should particularly recall and frequently reflect that it is God who assumed human flesh, that the manner in which he became man exceeds our comprehension, not to say our powers of expression, and finally that he vouchsafed to become man in order that we men might be born again as the children of God. I really do recommend that you pick up the Catechism of the Council of Trent and sort of use that as a little bit of a base. It's shorter, to me, it's shorter than the Catechism of the Catholic Church that we presently have. And it just seems like a straight narrative, not an easy narrative, but a straight narrative in terms of what we believe from the creed. So I suggest that. And it has some really interesting nuances in terms of the nature of Christ as a human being and his relation to his, his divine nature and how that worked in the nature of his death. So I recommend that, and it goes well beyond anything I could begin to talk about. So here's a question. Why didn't Jesus just say straight out from the very first that he was God? It's kind of like the parables. He's building his precepts to a people who otherwise would no doubt just out of hand reject, as many did anyway, and as many do today, his kingship. I was looking again at Matthew, and one of the things that the disciples ask him is, why do you speak in parables? And he answers, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to him who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, You shall indeed hear, but never understand, and you shall indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are heavy of hearing, and their eyes they have been closed, lest they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn for me to heal them. And then he adds, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's at Matthew 13, verse 10. And I kind of like this at verse 34. All this Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. People don't believe, even when evidence is presented. So it was difficult enough to present himself slowly and carefully. And had he said it all at once, I'm guessing that there would have been no time before he would have been taken out and executed. There needed to be the time to develop the faith among those who would accept it. In the way he did it, he brought many to belief with deliberation and care, and those to whom he bequeathed his message, they then took it to the known world. And so we are left now to say what we understand that Jesus is. Who do you say he is? For those who believe, the old saying goes, no proof is necessary. For those who don't believe, no proof is possible. Well, I hope I haven't confused you, but I hope I've also intrigued you enough, if you haven't done it before, to go 
and look at all these source documents, look at the Church Fathers, look at the New Testament, look at the Old Testament, look at it all and look at, of course, the various councils and the teachings that are developed from the earliest days and how they stack up to you and whether they secure you to your belief in Catholicism, attract you to Catholicism, keep you in Catholicism, well, that's what I'm hoping for. I don't want it to drive you away. And next week, I think I'm going to talk about evangelization. I heard something today that really kind of interested me. So we'll see. It kind of relates to this because I suppose this is a form of evangelization. But it's hard. It's hard to think about. It's hard to practice. 